0: Welcome to the podcast for pet carers. If you're a pet parent or work in the pet care industry, then this is the podcast for you. Our show is about all things pet care, discussing everything from cats and kittens, dog training, pet nutrition, boarding, grooming, daycare, and much more. Join us fortnightly as our host and dog trainer extraordinaire, Glenn Cook, chats with leading pet industry professionals.
1: Welcome back to the podcast for Pet Carers. I'm host of the show, Glenn Cook, and today joining me in the studio, I have Andrew Clark, who's just come on board with Canine Evolution as the National Training Manager for all of Australia. Welcome, Andrew. Thank you. Great to be here. Before we kick off the show and we get into our subject matter, which I'm going to introduce shortly, tell us a little bit about your history.
0: I started off in the dog industry over 20 years ago now. I was a handler in Corrective Services Dog Unit. Yep. I later became a trainer within that unit and certified to train dogs for justice purposes. Had a bit of a career change in 2009. Mm -hmm. I went to local government in companion animals. I stayed there approximately for about 18 months as a full-time employee. Does that mean you're a ranger? uh, No, I was coordinating animal management issues. Okay. yeah, Investigating dog attacks, all that sort of thing. I left council full-time after about 18 months, but I stayed on as a consultant probably for another couple of years after that because they couldn't fill my position. Yep. And to this day, I provide consultancy services for that council and numerous others throughout the state. Fantastic. Let's talk a little bit about your time with councils when you were assessing dog behaviour. Tell us a little bit about that. With council, it probably wasn't so much assessing dog behaviour, it was more from the legal side of things. Mm guy Council, who I was with, I didn't have the quantity of dog attacks that some of the other councils might have had, like Central Coast and Blacktown and things, yep. but we did still get some quite nasty incidents. We probably would have averaged around 80 reported attacks a year. Fortunately, most of those weren't serious, or especially serious aggression issues with humans, but mm-hmm. some were, yeah, definitely. Pretty
1: exciting career that you've had being involved in a lot of animal behaviour, especially canine behaviour, as you've sort of ascertained. A lot of it is more so around dealing with aggression.
0: Yeah, aggression from a law enforcement point of, uh, or a regulatory point of view mm-hmm. is definitely aggression. Um, in the private training world as well, you've got other things like separation stress, hyperarousal issues with dogs, yep, or even compulsive disorders as well, where dogs are self-harming themselves. Mm. So, mm.
1: Well, that leads us into our topic that we thought we would have a bit of a discussion around. You and I were having a chat around it and I thought, hmm, that actually makes a good topic for a podcast. What we decided to talk about was early intervention because a lot of times when people actually seek out the services of dog trainers, whether it be professional or just for a bit of advice, it's usually after something has already transpired. So you generally find that something's happened. And usually it's a tragedy that leads people into deciding that now I need to go and spend money on training.
0: That's exactly right. Probably, look, I don't like to say it, but the vast majority of behavior assessments I do on dogs for council imposed orders or proposed orders are known issues. Yep. Or to a lesser extent, the warning signs were there, but the owners didn't pick them up but Mm. a lot of them are known issues which the owners play down or they try to manage. Incredibly, I find
1: that there is a vast majority of people that still have very limited knowledge or access to training. It's been a bane of my career, I guess, for three decades now where I've thought things were going to get better, situations would improve, knowledge would be more enhanced as the internet came into fruition and we sort of developed that access all that worldwide access and that fellowship of trainers and supportive people in the industry all around the world. Sadly, that's not been the case so much. It has helped, but there still is an enormous majority of people out there who really have no idea what they're doing as far as raising a dog. I feel the other area that there is some concern of mine and fellow trainers in the industry, I'm sure you would agree, is that there is a lot of people who go onto the internet and they get advice from people who just have very little knowledge or expertise in that area themselves. Even people who are dog owners are giving complex training advice and behaviour or suggesting what a person should or shouldn't be doing when they really have no knowledge on that at all. Primarily, it'd be like you or I going to a surgeon or going to have surgery and then finding out the surgeon just did a bit of online research and had opinions on what surgery should go like and that's exactly what's happening in the dog training scope
0: you've only just got to look at any dog training forum there's a lot of them out there and i'm sure you're a member of many of them too firstly you cringe at the questions people are asking because they are the dogs do have serious issues and they're asking the general population how they should address it don't get me wrong these people are replying are good-intentioned people, of course. But their experience is limited to their dogs, or oh, this is what I did with my dog, and it could be a totally different situation to what they did with their dog to address that problem, mm. to what the actual original poster was asking. Yeah, you know, it, it is bad. It is really bad. And then you get that same person six months later when an incident has happened. They're looking at council-imposed orders, or someone in the household is seriously injured. Aggression, I don't know if you've found this, Glenn, but in the last 12 months, I don't know what the reason is, I have found aggression within the household towards family members has increased disproportionately to all other issues. COVID. It was COVID. Well, yeah. Yeah. And resource guarding of certain family members, aggression towards them, it is is really bad. And a lot of those situations, there has been warning signs and some warning signs for many years. Mm. And people just, well... One that I think of last year where the owner got bitten quite badly. It was resource guarding the older son who the dog was very close to. And all the warning signs I could see when I went to that consult, the family totally missed. And the classic ones, avoidance. Mm. Avoidance is one of the major parts of body language people miss. Every time the dog sees the aversive stimuli, they turn their head away. People don't take that as a bad thing. Mm. And it's constant and or they slink down when the aversive stimulus approaches. They just totally miss it. And this particular one where I'm talking about where the mother in the family got bitten quite badly when she was just giving her son some food, this had been – I think the, they'd had the dog for three or four years off the top of my head. Mm. And this had been going on for many years yep. before anyone was actually bitten. But the warning signs were – well. I can't say they're ignored because they just didn't know what they meant. Mm. And I actually recorded that consult for NDTF students because it is a classic. Going
1: back further to what you were saying before, I don't cringe at the questions being asked because you're right, people don't know what they don't know. They're very curious as to what's going on, what needs to be done, and they're out there seeking questions. The unfortunate side of things, as we said before, there are people out there who give advice, who do have good intentions. However, there is a very old saying that says, the highway to hell is paved with good intentions. That doesn't mean that people are bad for giving advice or trying to help. It's just that they don't know. If I ask a question to somebody... And they say, I think that's right. The response to that or the retort that I have to that is, do you think or do you know? And that's what I'd like to see a lot more people doing on these forums. I'd like people to be knowing what they're talking about rather than just thinking that they're offering some helpful advice to somebody that that is literally going to cause more problems than you can poke a stick at. That's not just in the dog training field, that's abundant in all fields. It doesn't matter what forum you're on, whether it be cameras or motorbikes or guitars or budgies or children or whatever it is. People enjoy trying to be part of a helpful conversation. I'm not slapping anyone down. I'm just saying that if you want to give helpful advice, be sure of the content that you're giving. Parrot fashion, repeating things that other people are saying can put other people into some extremely dangerous territory, as you've already found. I too have consulted multiples of people who have been advised by good-hearted people with big intentions trying to help out people who are reaching out to the community looking for assistance. The problem is, once again, as we've already identified and we've spoken about, is that they're giving advice that they just aren't prepared for, and they're not prepared for the consequences either. Because these people will possibly try what they've been told. It can create some terrifying confrontations between them and their dog. And many dogs have been euthanized, unfortunately, because people have either given bogus advice or they have alarmed the family so much that they have believed that there is a bigger problem at stake than what actually is. And this is where professionals come into it. I love this topic that you suggested to me, Andrew, about early intervention because there's so many things that can be done. However, they should be done by an experienced professional that's had yard time who has actually been involved in the industry, who's had multiples of cases under their belt and have seen and been walking the trench basically – walking the fields, going through experiences and helping people transform these dogs and helping them to ascend to a level where they can be rehabilitated and then trusted into the family and the community once again, because there's multiple things at stake many times when these situations arise. It's not just the problems with the family. It's also how the dog is perceived and behaves itself in the community as well. And the community will judge harshly on these matters these days because Not only are these people giving advice to what you should be doing online, but they're also advising people on what and how a dog should be behaving as community standards as well. So we're going to go through a few of these early intervention suggestions. In our conversation before, you said you can avoid heartache because of possible property destruction, injury expense, and possible legal action. Do you want to go a little further into that?
0: Okay, well, early intervention, like as you know, if you get a behavior problem in its infancy, Mm. it's generally a very easy thing to address. Yeah. You know, like the dog's got hyper arousal issues. So you add a bit of impulse control, you teach place and all that, you teach no pulling on the lead. That's all done reasonably easily and Mm. cost effectively. You ignore that and just think it's a dog being a dog. Then all of a sudden, those hyper arousal issues start to build. And all of a sudden we all know what happens with dogs that are very hyper-aroused as they're coming into maturity. A lot of the time that does turn into full-blown aggression Mm. and there's no impulse control with those dogs. So all of a sudden an issue that could have been addressed in early adolescence very cost-effectively and shouldn't take a lot of time is now a major issue that you're going to be working through for months if not years. Mm. Other classic little ones like shadow-chasing, How many people think a dog's chasing a shadow is cute or they even promote it by getting a torch beam out? Or a laser. A laser. And, Mm. you know, I saw that in agility years ago. I think it's – I think, hopefully, it's it's not used very often these days, but people rewarding their dogs with a flashlight. The Border Collies chasing the flashlight was the reward. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Oh, haven't you ever seen that?
1: Well, I've seen it used for – Deaf dogs mm. as, uh, a, as a marker. Yes. yeah. Uh, so for that I have no issue oh, no, with that. Oh, a
0: marker for a deaf dog is a great tool.
1: The phrase that you used before or you coined before I thought was quite apt for that situation is hyperarousal. Mm. And there's people in the community that know and manage their dogs quite well and they're different from the rest of us. When you're talking about people involved in competitive sports, they know what their dog is, they know what they're dealing with and they know how to manage and contain that type of dog. Most of those people are obsessive about working with their dogs. They're not mm. Mr. and Mrs. Smith who have just bought a dog with their children mm. and that now occupy space in their backyard or in their living room or wherever that dog resides. These people are a completely different category and they're a very, very small majority of dog owners. However, they're ones that take a lot of limelight because they do exciting and adrenaline-rearing skills. So obviously they get headlines and people, it's like anything, you know, like there's billions of car drivers in the world, but the people who get the headlines are people who race cars because that's adrenaline stakes and it's the same thing with competitive sports. So a very tiny microscopic amount of people involved in clubs and training and so forth compared to, the overwhelming mighty majority of people who are just pet owners and have no intention to ever do anything like that. Mm. The problem being is that they also have limited intentions on maintaining control with their dogs as well. So they play a little bit of obedience hokey pokey with their dogs. They put their left foot in and then they take their left foot out and then they wait for a behaviour to come back in. So the left foot goes back in again and then they think they've done enough so the left foot comes out again again. And that is fundamentally a problem because many of these things that you're talking about or you and I having a conversation about, many of these things extend beyond just doing the couple of days here or a little bit of a week's training and then that's it. Training and behavior management, these are lifestyle solutions. And when I say that, when I talk about a lifestyle, I'm not meaning that you are imprisoned into having to train your dog all the time. People who like going to the gym, for them it's a lifestyle as well. If you're involved in competitive bodybuilding, then that's another very small percentage of people who actually do it and it's another thing that you're going to be obsessed about and it's another thing that you're going to be locked into. There are also billions of people who go to gyms and and clubs all over the world who just go there to get fit. So I don't like people thinking that obedience lifestyle, something that they and the dog need to be – involved in ongoing is something that they're going to be trapped in and it's going to take a lot of time. In fact, we're talking cents in the dollar kind of attitude where or minutes in the day where they can do five, 10 minutes a day of suitable and appropriate and meaningful obedience and make a significant difference, not only in the dog's life, but fundamentally theirs as well. And that's what a lot of people don't do.
0: And that's what I, you know, I just want to really emphasise with clients as well. You never tell them you've got to do half an hour every day because it isn't going to happen with most people. Mm. What I ask for, you maintain good management, structure and control 24-7 and do five minutes, formal training every day. If you can do two five-minute sessions in that day, fantastic. Yeah, agreed. Because if you start asking more than that from the average pet owner, you're going to lose them.
1: They see it as a burden. It becomes yeah. a burden yes. to them and it becomes something that they feel, like I said before, that they're trapped into, not yeah. something that they want to or desire to do, even though they should see that it will get them results. And I agree with you entirely, Andrew. I think that when people look at it more formally as something that I've got five minutes, I can spend five minutes doing something with the dog. Better five minutes than no minutes. And that doesn't mean that the dog isn't a part of your family, and but this is a formal side of it where you, just, you set aside that time that you can spare and you say, right, in this time I'm going to work on the increments of teaching the dog to go to a place. We've got a bed inside the living room and I'm going to teach the dog that when you go on the bed, you stay there and you get rewarded and you come off and there's some form of punishment. I'm going to use that word very sparingly because when people hear the word punishment, they automatically freak out that that means you're going to go over there and whop the dog or something like that. <laughs> I know, but that's another problem with advice that people give off the internet. They say things like never punish the dog, but punishments a part of life ongoing Whether whatever training style or management you want to do. You cannot avoid any forms of punishment, even withholding food or putting the dog away is a form of punishment. So whatever works for you and your dog ethically should be thought about and discussed with a professional trainer as well.
0: And I'm glad you brought up place as well because I think that is one of the – well, it is. Apart from – maybe apart from a give command and recall, Mm. it is the most important thing you can teach a dog. It leads on to so many other things. And you're going back to the five minutes training per day as well. Yep. You can start doing that. Yes, you're going to need your few minutes just getting the dog best possible outcome is for maintaining position on the mat – Place training can be done while you're getting dinner ready, mm. while you're watching TV. It doesn't require much effort from the owners. Not Especially, once you get going. Not once you get going. Yeah. You, can, you can. As I said, I say to owners, set yourself a challenge. In one week, you can leave the dog in one room, go and have a cup of coffee for five minutes and come back and they're still there. That should be achievable in one week. Yep. And- some take it up and, yeah, they get back to me and say, yes, they've been able to do that.
1: That's what I call a depends answer because people ask me a question like that and say, how long will it take? My, <laughs> my my response to that is depends. Yeah. I know people don't like that as an answer but there is a reason why depends is a suitable answer sometimes. To add to that, the bullet points of that are how much time are you going to spend with a dog? The five to ten minutes that we're asking people to turn to train the dog will turn into no minutes. So that will be a dependent. That will be a well. That, that will be a reason why it didn't transform in that week as
0: you suggested it did. I was talking about though, just to clarify, and yeah. for crystal clarity. People that did put their dog in place while they get dinner ready and things like that, and then when they're watching the TV, don't have them up on their lap with them the whole time. Give them their own time for fifteen minutes mm. in place. You know, and you'd be surprised if you put that sort of effort in at home, how quickly your dog does advance. Absolutely. They just start to relax and they just, and it's just like a normal daily routine for them.
1: So getting back to that, my suggestion with people is that if those are some of the things that are attractive to you to have a relationship with your dog, then that's definitely where I would suggest doing a lesson with a trainer somebody, again, who's qualified and has experience and can show you that they can do those sort of things with their own dogs as well. Mm. Incredibly, it is a little bit of a a slight on the industry. Incredibly, there's a lot of people who would give advice out. They will make reels on Instagram or social media and yet they can't train their own dog. They couldn't probably train a a board dog to dig a hole and that distresses multiple professionals in the industry is that there are people out there when – they can't do it themselves. So they're repeating things parrot fashion. Sometimes it's very, very good advice. I've listened to it sometimes and I thought, hmm, that's actually good advice. I like the way that it was structured. I like the content. I like the thought behind it. They use some interesting graphics and they made it funny and they made it appealing. And sometimes it's actually good. Often it's terrifying what's been suggested. There have been so many of them where even at times I've gone beyond temptation and actually contacted the originator of the post and said to them, do you really feel that that is great advice to be giving people or did you just do it to fill space? I'm not trying to be rude or confrontational, I'm just trying to Get into my head why people would put out advice like that sometimes. Sometimes they answer back and they say, Mind your own business. Other times, <laughs> and other times I have had people go, Thanks for bringing it up in a non confrontational way. What would you suggest? Like if I was to design a reel around that, what would you put out there? And I thought, Oh, that's actually nice of them that they are willing to engage in a conversation. And sometimes I say, I would actually like to see it with a dog first and foremost. I'd like you to see you doing it with a dog. Getting back on track with this discussion, we were talking about legal issues before and that's something where you have dipped your toe in the pool quite extensively. Let's talk a little bit about that because I think people need to be aware of what it can lead them to if they're not prepared to do some of this small amount of work and right amount of work.
0: Just about every behaviour assessment I do, Mm. there has been known problems or problems people chose not to address. Right. They thought they could manage them or they thought it was normal. And a lot of times, probably in the minority of cases, people just don't know what to look for. Right. And that was, well, I, I, won't, I don't want to mention former clients' names no. and things. There was one young girl who she got some probably very poor training advice and she didn't pick up her dogs were actually low confidence dogs, but you could see it every time they walked past another dog. They would be turning their heads the other way. They were in total avoidance to other dogs, even though they weren't reacting. Mm. And both her dogs, off lead when they shouldn't have been, attacked another dog and she was in the world of trouble. Right. Then she got some very poor advice from, so again, we can't mention names, but from a trainer who gave a cash for comment type assessment, which didn't do her any favours whatsoever, and probably a less than scrupulous lawyer that did her objections against the order, basically saying the dogs were fine. And this is straight after they've attacked, without provocation, another dog just walking along and obviously counsel threw her representations and temperament assessment back in her face saying this is rubbish. But she actually, because she to that day, until she actually did reach out to me, she actually believed the dogs were fine. So as soon as I took the dogs to assess because we asked for extension and to resubmit the objections as soon as I watched them. Every time they walked past another dog, they were very low confidence. And I sort of like, okay, now we've got a reason why these dogs attacked. And then I could actually do up a temperament assessment and objections that made sense. Right. I can't say it was a totally happy ending, but we got out of a dangerous dog order. Mm. Sometimes you can't avoid that, getting an order of some form. And when your dog attacks unprovoked, you are generally going to get an order of some form. Hopefully, though, you can get a nuisance order or a menacing dog order instead of a dangerous dog order. Mm. But again, these were known problems. And she was seeing trainers previously as well. It was never picked up.
1: That's a really good point. And it's something that has concerned me. And I too have been on the scene. I think you and I arguably are some of the better assessors for aggression in the public sector in dog cases. Whether people agree with that or not, I usually judge it by clients and people that I've worked with and the results that we're actually getting out of it. And both of us have been doing it for a long time. I've been working with aggressive dogs for three decades and you're pretty much the same two or three decades. So both of us have an extensive wealth of knowledge in working with aggression. Both of us have worked with working dogs and trained working dogs as part of our career as well. So Not only do we have the understanding of the pet side of it, we also have the understanding of the working side of it as well. So when I've consulted with people and gone in to have a look at their dog and they've shown me the way that their dog is behaving and told me that other trainers have been there and they've assessed the dog, out of curiosity, without being combative, I've simply asked, what did they tell you? What was the advice they gave you? It has literally knocked me off my feet when I hear what, some of the suggestions are. And I have to ask the question again, tell me again, is that absolutely what they told you? And then they say, yes, this is advice that they gave me direct from their lips to my ears. This is exactly what I'd been advised to do. And when I think about it, I think, my God, it's terrifying that people are giving this advice because genuinely as we said before, they're people with very good intentions However, many of them are pet dog trainers. They don't have the knowledge, the expertise, or the experience to work with people like this. But for some reason, they get it into their head where they just think, I'll just have a go. I'll have a try and I'll see what works out. If trainers are listening to this, which I know that there are, there are trainers who listen to this podcast. If trainers are listening to this and you're not quite there yet, then don't do it. Be admirable in your actions and say to people, that's not me. I'm a GP at this stage. I really need a specialist to look at this. Here's a list of referrals of people that I know have proven themselves to administer good logic and sound advice to help this dog get through what it's going through at the moment before it becomes another problem. Or if it is a problem, adding fuel to the fire. And that's exactly the analogy that I use with people often is, and I have done this with clients before, is that the advice you've given is basically how to put out a fire by throwing petrol on top of it. (laughs) (laughs) I know that sounds a little facetious and this is not about beating anyone up or trying to insult a group of people or anything like that. This is simply trying to resolve situations that never really needed to get off the ground in the first place. It's of great concern to you, to me, because not only is a terrible and traumatic experience for the family to go through, it also starts to shine lenses onto other people in the professional fields as well. Because then people start thinking, well, I've just had three trainers around and all of them have given me terrible advice, which led to this horrendous outcome. Trainers can't be trusted. They're not people of good merit. The example I gave before, if you're a GP status, and that means you're knowledgeable and you know things You have skills, but your skills are still limited nonetheless. A good GP will never try and do something that they will send you to a specialist. They just wouldn't dream of it. They would say, you need to go and see my colleague or you need to go to hospital right now. Mm -hmm. They would send you to the appropriate agent to make sure that you receive the best care that you possibly could. I don't see that in the animal training space. I see people that just say, I want to have a go. This is the day that I cut my teeth on this. If you're listening to me and you are a trainer and you're thinking about getting into these type of fields, mentor with the correct person. Go and spend time going out and actually dealing with it and then watching that trainer watch you do the assessment or the training that's required for that type of dog because it can not only be traumatic as we listed before, but you could actually be putting your own life or your own health at jeopardy by working with a dog that will tune you up. And I've seen that multiple times. I've seen friends and colleagues leave the industry because they've had a dog light them up from their toe to their nose. And please believe me, you can get yourself in some very, very serious trouble. I know this conversation is more about early intervention, but we're talking about behaviour that can lead into aggression. I mean, early intervention is not just all about aggression. We're not just consumed with, you know, every dog is going to be an aggressive dog. We're talking about, you know, easy things that dogs could um, run out the gate and run in front of traffic or something like that. And, again, traumatic things. But that could have been easily intervened if a trainer went around there and showed you how to do before, Andrew, as you suggested, learning impulse control. Yep. I just need to discuss what impulse control actually is if anybody's listening and they actually are unaware of what the term is. Most of us have impulse control or we're taught impulse control as children into adults, sometimes less than others. I have very limited impulse control when I buy guitars, which disgusts my wife. (laughs) And other people have, they're lacking impulse control with things like gambling with addictions and so forth. So impulse control in dogs is when a dog learns that I want to do the behavior, but What has happened is I've had skills or consequences instilled before the behavior that now I think about. And that means that I consider the outcomes before I just go ahead and do the behavior that I want to do. For example, chasing after any sort of livestock or any sort of other animal. The dog wants to do it, chasing a cat, for example. The dog may want to do it. However, if it's had a term of experience where the trainer or the handler, or the owner, whatever you want to call that agent in between, has taught the dog, if you do this without me allowing you to do it, which I wouldn't anyway, but if you do it, there is a negative or an aversive consequence that's going to be attached with that. Now, after the dog learns that for a select period of time, the dog will then choose an alternate behaviour because the alternate behaviour is then rewarded. So if the dog doesn't chase, instead offers you a new behavior, a desirable behavior, one that makes you feel good, then you reward the dog and then the dog feels good. So the dog goes, okay, I dodged a bullet. I didn't chase the cat. I did something else instead. I wanted to, but I chose not to. And then you reward the dog. And then the dog goes, if I do chase the cat, that's the outcome I'm going to expect, something I don't like. Whereas if I don't do it, the outcome is going to be great for me. After a period of time, it becomes a no-brainer for the dog. The dog still needs a little maintenance and a little touch-up on that from time to time to tempt the dog and then have the dog go, aha, you tried to trick me, but you know I don't want to do this. I want to do the alternate behavior. I want to do the good behavior. The one that you and me have taught strengthens our relationship. So that's what we generally term as impulse control whenever we're doing that. And that can be through a myriad of things. We teach dogs when we're doing sports work and we're teaching dogs to bite sleeves or tugs or anything like that. You can teach the dog, you can't have it until you give me a level of obedience. So we teach the dog impulse control. You just can't go in and take it. You have to do a select criteria of skills first, and then I will tell you that you can have it. You can put that application into multiple onsets and then the dog can learn from that. However, I just wanted to go into a little bit of depth of discussing it because I had people saying to me, you've thrown around this phrase, impulse control. What is it? Because they're thinking about it from a dog point of view and not from a impulsiveness from our point of view, because we, we
0: suffer from impulsiveness ourselves, as I suggested. 100%. Mm. Just going back to that point about other trainers taking on jobs that are probably beyond their skill set. Yeah. I wouldn't put most trainers in that. I get referred, a lot of my work comes from referrals from other trainers. Yes, yeah, smart um, people a lot do of that. Them, mm. And a lot of from former NDTF students yep. and a lot of highly respected trainers that you and I both know. Just to really clarify what we're saying, the sort of jobs that most trainers wouldn't take on, for example, are ah, human aggression issues um, in the household. Mm. I don't know about you. I don't like doing them, but I do because not many people take them on.
1: Just for clarification, I don't like doing any aggression cases. Most trainers don't like doing aggression cases because it's upsetting and it can be upsetting. However, it's necessary. And it's like ambulance. Ambulance people would prefer not to have to arrive at a a vehicle accident where there's been a serious injury or fatality, but that's a job. And they know they need to get in there as quickly as they possibly can to rectify the situation and help save a life. I'm not going to speak for you, but that's the process that I have and I think about when I'm doing work with people who have got dog aggressive dogs is if I don't do it, who will? And will they do an adequate enough job to be able to rectify the situation and resolve the relationship which is plummeting out of control?
0: Serious dog aggression, dog on dog aggression. That's probably a bread and butter type um, job for me. Very few people do it well. Mm.
1: The other point to that is few owners do it well because they won't invest the time or the finances into it. And unfortunately... These things can be costly from time to time. They don't need to be extensively costly if they do the homework that's provided with the work that needs to go into it. The problem is will they do the homework?
0: What does it mean to them and do they really want this outcome? And, again, the earlier you get to those problems, you know, a lot of dog aggression issues start with the dog's just excited to see other dogs. Yep. And it just snowballs. Mm. And people say, come to me and say, oh, my dog's 15 months old. He used to be fine with other dogs. In actual fact, that hyper-aroused behaviour he was displaying was antisocial mm. and they didn't pick it up and all of a sudden now that it's developing into a serious dog aggression issue.
1: Mm, absolutely. It,
0: it is a common story that you've heard and I've heard and many other trainers have heard.
1: Let's talk about some of those signs that people can start looking into, like things that would give it away that their dog is not comfortable and something is fast approaching or imminent.
0: One of the ones that I think is most often missed is avoidance. As mm. I said before, Yeah, looking away the turning the head away to the aversive stimulus. If the dog is constantly doing that, you've probably got a problem. Yep. The dog is not confident in that situation, even though he's not reacting at that point, it's worth getting it looked at, mm. especially if it's other dogs and people. Another one appeasement gestures, they give a lot away. Now, don't get me wrong, dogs display appeasement gestures for good stimuli as well as bad. So if you're holding a ball, withholding the ball, waiting to throw it for your dog and he starts yawning and tongue flicking in front of you, that's obviously. That's frustration. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's not a problem. Yeah. It's anticipation of what's going to happen next. Yep. Yeah. But obviously, if you put your dog in situations, often mix the tongue flick. And I, I do take a lot of videos of my training even I don't pick up appeasement gestures sometimes with the dogs. Mm. You see it when you watch back the video and think, oh, that's interesting. Or the yawns. Yawns are a little bit easier to see. Hyper arousal, fidgeting, all those things are little telltale signs. Another one, sniffing the same piece of ground over and over again. Mm. They're all sign things that people miss and they are subtle. It's not like, you know, when a dog sticks his, pins his ears to the back of his heads and shows you all his teeth. You know that dog's way out of his comfort zone. Mm. These are subtle and people miss them regularly.
1: The sniffing on the ground thing is an interesting one and it's often referred to as displacement. Displacement, yes. Yeah, it's one where when the dog is torn between feeling emotions and doesn't know how to deal with either one of them so it decides instead of option A or B, it creates a new option C which is don't do anything and it kind of falls into the fight, flight or freeze triad where the dog has frozen and it doesn't know what to do next so it just thinks – I will try and bury my head in the sand. Those sort of situations are showing that the dog is actually dealing with great stress and doesn't know how to manage it. So it's trying to do it by just inventing a behavior of either staring into the sky or turning in circles sometimes or just showing a repetitive type of behavior. As you said, just sniffing a random spot on the ground, which – there is no intent behind it to find anything or to urinate or do anything. It's just like, how do I deal with this enormous amount of stress that I have right now? hundred
0: percent. One thing I want to bring up before we finish is compulsive disorders because they are extremely hard to break. Get them in their infancy and I'm pretty confident we can get over it because you can use techniques like distraction and management. Mm. Once that behavior becomes habitual it's not a monetary thing. Even if you've got all the money in the world, you need the time as well to and the constant supervision. The Wymarana I worked with um, a number of years ago now yep. that was self-mutilating her foot, I learned so much from that dog. Before I got to the dog, it was a two-year habitual behaviour, yep. and the dog had been failed by a lot of people before they actually came to me. Mm. I looked at that. And I thought that cycle could have been broken early Mm. because it happened when the dog injured its paw. They had an Elizabethan collar on it. It was wearing one of those while the foot was injured, paw healed. There was no issue. Shortly after that, the housemate died, as in the housemate dog that Mm. the other dog was very attached to. It caused a lot of stress in the dog and that dog went back to licking the hind paw. Now, before any behaviour modification was done, the dog was just put on drugs, on selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, fluoxetine, yep. yep, and a cocktail of others after, and that was just allowed to fester for two years without any behaviour modification taking mm. place. So you can imagine the state of the dog when it finally came and it was seriously self-mutilating at that stage.
1: Yeah, those things are terrible when the dog starts to chew into its own flesh. Oh. It's a very distressing thing and to think that a dog could keep tunnelling through to bone just as it started off, as you said, you know, like it's been an irritation that then has become a habitual behaviour and the dog has just continued over and over and over again. Some of those cases need training, Mm -hmm. as you said, early onset training. Others do require a a combination or a cocktail of training and a medication um, to help prevent the dog from doing it, whatever it requires, but... Just allowing that to keep going and going and going without seeking professional advice, that's not going to end well.
0: The most common compulsive disorder with dogs is is probably tail chasing. Mm. I I don't know if you saw my social media post last year about this little dog. Again, it had an operation on the tail. And after the operation, it's to remove a cyst. After the operation, it started chasing its tail. Now, this dog was six or seven years old. It never had aggression issues previously. No reported aggression issues. When it started chasing its tail, well, the vet thought it was nerve pain, and that's fine, and put the dog on medication for nerve pain and everything, but the possibility of a compulsive disorder wasn't explored, mm. and that was the early onset of a compulsive disorder with this dog. Mm. And not only was it chasing its tail, by the time I saw it anyway, was it chasing its tail frantically, the owner tried to intervene to distract, it attacked the owner. Right. I'd never seen that sort of aggression um, from a dog that had never shown aggression previously right. with, with a compulsive disorder. What gets me though, like this, I got the dog six months after, but we did make headway very quickly. Once we did start um, just int- introducing, getting a lead on the dog and being able to control the behaviour of the dog, we did start making some inroads um, almost immediately. You don't solve anything like that in a session or two. No. But – we did make some very good inroads early on.
1: Yep. The great thing about that is it gives the owner a view of opportunity that the situation can improve. And with training and with time, you can definitely see some achievable results. Sometimes, and regularly I should say, training is a long game. But again, the length of that long game depends on all of the contributions that go into it from the people who are providing training and the handlers that are actually doing the homework. Mm -hmm. If that combination collides well or collaborates well, then you generally see results quite quickly, a lot more quickly than, as I said before, doing the training hokey pokey, left foot in, left foot out. That never really ends well. Even though results can be mildly achievable, it needs to be, especially when they've degenerated into some of these terrible type of behaviours or unfortunate type of behaviours, they need a little bit more concentration, a little bit more time and a little bit more dedication to say, okay, I need to pour into it now but I can back it off a little later as I start mm. to see results. But just before we conclude this, the other thing that we have seen an enormous amount of which we knew we were going to, all the trainers were discussing this on the forums, is separation anxiety Yeah. because now we went from, Everybody was at home. Everybody was getting all these dogs. They were all excited to empty pounds, which everybody was singing hallelujah about. To be honest, it was lovely. It was a great concept. I'm glad that these dogs got some reprieve. But the sad thing was a lot of them poured back into the pounds as soon as people went, oh, okay, I'm allowed out. I can go back down to Bondi and go down and get my gelatos and go back to work and do all those sort of things and travel again. Mm-hmm. by dog. Which was Very unfortunate and a little bit cruel that the dog was used as a source of entertainment for a period of time and then just thumped straight back into a pound situation again. For the dogs that were more fortunate and did manage to stay on, what did happen, and again, we knew this was going to happen, they were limited in the amount of socialization they received. They were played with and around consistently because everybody was home for 24 hours a day, seven days a week, months and months and months on end where we we're all locked down. And then suddenly we're back at work again. It's like children who have been appeased and entertained at their whim. And then suddenly it's just cut off cold turkey. Bye. i going to go back to work. And then suddenly the dogs are, I'm not putting up with this. I've had you and the rest of the family entertaining me and throwing balls and taking me for walks and using me as an excuse to get outside the house. Now all of a sudden I've been thrown in the backyard and everyone's gone and I'm going to sing the song of my people to the whole neighbourhood.
0: There was two big fallouts to me from my workload, two huge fallouts from COVID and obviously one was separation stress, Yep, the other was dog human aggression yep. towards visitors coming to the house because mm. adult, young didn't dogs, come. yeah, no one mm. was coming over to the house. Yeah, the socialisation. Yeah. Mm. And whilst they, the dogs saw people outside when they were taken for walks, they'd never actually seen visitors coming to their house. Yeah, good point. And that that was a huge thing. With Not so much now, it's petered down right down now, but the start of last year, up till probably about mid last year, I reckon 50% of my jobs were aggression towards people coming to the house.
1: That's a really good observation. Mm,
0: That was a huge one. Obviously, people couldn't really do much about that simply because people weren't able to come to the house. Yep. Separation, stress, and I made a number of posts about this on social media. Obviously, not everyone reads my posts and things, but, you know, start conditioning your dog for when you go back to work. It's too late once it's happened. Once you go back to work, well, it's not too late. It becomes a hell of a lot harder because, as you know, in theory, separation stress is probably relatively easy to address. Yep. In practice, once you, if you're at work with kids and everything else, you haven't got the time to address it. I generally, and I don't know about what you think, but when I worked with separation stress dogs, I generally asked the owner to have a week or two off work after we did the consult, Or took the dog in, whatever the situation may have been, so they could implement the training and break that cycle of the stress of the the dog stressing every time they left the house. You know, Mm. in theory, it's simple. You desensitize to the triggers, the owners going out, and then you start gradually building up duration, the owners away from and distance and duration, the owners away from the dog. In theory, if you've got the time, easy. In practice very hard yeah i was gonna
1: say the theory and the practice <laughs> yeah. are, yeah. Well, are two different colliding yeah, points And if you're mm. if you're
0: got busy lifestyles with children and going to work for your 40 hour week yep good luck
1: hey folks the topic has been early intervention by no means does andrew and i want to make this sound so simple that it's an easy job and everybody should just get it obviously we're professionals we've been doing this for a long time the people that we've been working with are qualified professionals as well Their job, their full-time career is training dogs and that's what we do and that's why we're talking about this subject matter and we feel very passionate about it is not to shame other people because that's not it at all. It's not about shame. What we are trying to do is try and encourage and educate the greater community to know that there are resources out there for them Sometimes you you need to search a little bit through the filter because there's a lot of people who will use flashy marketing to try and attract you in and pull you in. But examine the real qualifications of people before you start getting into some of this serious matter. Like general obedience, there's a lot of people out there who can do general obedience. They're quite good at it. They've been doing it for many years themselves. They have a wealth of experience in practical and theoretical knowledge. They know how to put a good program together. There are not a lot of good people out there when it comes to dealing with aggression management and some of these very serious dog behaviors. In fact, I think that is a shrinking market, not a growing market. There's a lot of people who try it, but they've unsuccessfully done it and caused lots of problems for the general people out there. Scrutinize the people that you're going to do it with. Talk to them. Make sure that you're satisfied that this person has your best interests at heart and they have the suitable qualifications that go with it and that you can actually examine case studies or even get references from other people who have done work with them before and you know that you're going to be in good hands with these type of people. Got anything to add to that, Andrew? Pretty much sums it up. In conclusion, please make sure that if you do see anything with your dog, whether it be obedience or behavioural or it's becoming seriously behavioural, you do identify that there is an issue, seek a industry professional that can step in, help you out and at least give you some advice to start off and then you can go from there. There have been a myriad of much happier people who've had their relationship healed between them and their dogs simply by making sure that they sought out sage advice by an industry professional as I said before. I think that's a good place to leave it for our topic today, which was early intervention. I'd like to thank Andrew Clark for joining me in the studio.
0: Thank you, Glenn. It's been a pleasure as always.
1: You're welcome. And if you want to know any more about training and behavior, you can contact Andrew. And funnily enough, he is the national training manager of Canine Evolution, which is our podcast sponsor. So we have Canine Evolution, spelled C A N I N E, Evolution. Dot com.au dot The reason I spelled it is because a lot of times people just put K and 9. That's not right. Also, our other show sponsor, which we're extremely thankful to, is petresortsaustralia.com.au. Don't forget the S when you're doing pet resorts because sometimes people put PetResortAustralia.com.au. That's not right either. It's petresortsaustralia.com.au where you can get all your pet minding, taken care of at any time of the year. Like if you're going on holidays, we've just had an abundance of people at all the resorts across Australia from Sydney, all the way up to Townsville where people have gone away on holidays and pet resorts have taken care of all their cats and dogs and do an absolutely fantastic job of it. Once again, industry professionals that you can count on. Thank you very much for listening to our show. Please, if you do like our show, leave a review for us on anywhere that you've listened to our podcast If you want to contact us, you can go into the show notes. We've got all the contact details there and you can let us know what you think. Thanks again for listening to the show. Look forward to seeing you next time.